Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hey everyone, it's Kara, as in Kara Cooney with Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. And we are we are flying without Jordan today because she is in Torino, Italy doing amazing work at the Museo Egizio. And so it's it's Amber coming in as co-host. How are you doing, Amber? Uh, I'm doing good. You good. know, the stopgap. Between the Contingency what? plans. <laughs> but you're, you're a good stopgap. You're a good placeholder, as, as I write about in my book, When Women Ruled the World. You're more than a placeholder. But I'm a, a, only a co-ruler, though. You know, have, my wings. <laughs> I have to have a co-regent. I'll take you any day. So, so it's going to be the Amber and Kara show. And before we got started with the recording, we were talking about our children and how we have to bribe them to get them to do anything. I don't know how powerful that makes us as women, but and mothers, but it's what it's what we do to get through the day. And I just dropped my kid off at camp, and I'm like, work hard, get stuff done, don't be bored. And, yeah, and, um, I've, I've barricaded myself in a room, locked all the doors, so hopefully they won't aggressively pound to try to get my attention. Sometimes that happens. I try to give them a heads up. but um, My kid is three blocks away in a rock camp, and I'm hoping he stays there and doesn't come into my house during this recording. It has happened before. It has happened many times. But anyway, what are we doing? We're doing a Q&A today, right? We've got patrons. Today is the, the June Q&A. Yeah. So it. we have our patron questions. That we're going to go through. We have about seven questions, but it's uh, it's an interesting mix because a few of them really ask you to speculate. As, as I want to do. Yeah. It's true. They know you so well. They know you would be interested in, in this kind of thing. So should we dive right in? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't think there's anything else we need to talk about going on in the world today except all of the, you know, the hellscape. Oh, well, uh, that we is might want to mention our summer hiatus. Our oh, let's break. do that. That's yeah. right. We're taking a little break. We're taking a mini break because, you know, summer, we have a lot to do. We're all going off places. Amber's going off on a trip with her in-laws. We may not all come back. <laughs> She's doing a great American adventure. And and I'm heading off to Europe for three weeks, in July, and we're all staggered a little bit. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, we'll return in mid-August, but mm-hmm. the plan currently is to release this June Q&A episode as sort of a double release with the part two of the Cleopatra discussion with Maya and Rebecca. And so right. we'll have those two final releases uh, for the summer, and then we'll take a few weeks off and come back around mid-August once we are all in the same location again. Okay, I love and it. At the same I mean, time, that's, yeah. that's the big challenge. You know, so really Zoom makes distance like- easy. But We're just missing one or two. It's true. It's true. But, All right. Yeah. So we will be back. And the same with the Substack. The Substack mm-hmm. is taking a little pause with the regular weekly posts. So for yeah. those of you who aren't yet subscribed to ancientnow.substack.com, you should stop by because we often, I mean, we, we basically started it as a companion to the podcast. So yeah. it really is if you're looking for more content on the ancient world and ancient Egypt, it's, it's probably worth your time. Yeah, and the the Substack, you know, it's called Ancient Now for a reason. We're we're discussing how antiquity is very much 
present in the modern world, that it is applicable to everything that is happening politically and economically, and that we can learn from going to the past. But more than that, that the past systems are very much alive in present systems. And and so we we look at that. But then another thing that Jordan, Amber, and I all contribute to is collecting all of the links that we see coming through our email and other feeds for anything that's ancient related. So we we pull those together and the links at you know towards the end of the Substack are are pretty gold. <laughs> they're they're they awesome. Are. Yeah. So you can you can go in there and look at all the the things that have happened in the last week, all of the releases, press releases of different discoveries, things like that. Yeah. Sometimes we pull some funny social media stuff that that we've mm-hmm. seen. And then sometimes we do we do allow ourselves to geek out with some one off posts like the the post on the the Khufu ivory statuette and some other posts as well. So we mix it up every now and again, but the weekly bread and butter of the Substack is the links and the news stories and the history is now theme. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun and it's good to have these different venues and it's funny how they're popular with different audiences. So they're doing, they're, do, they're both doing really well. The podcast is veering in a different direction from the Substack. Some people want to read, some people want to listen, some people oh, want no, to Oh, no, you know, I just learned Substack will read posts to you. Oh, the app. Yes. Oh. I actually, somebody who left a comment on one of our posts mentioned it, that, that they listened to our Substack post, you know, That's while crazy. like driving, doing chores, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, a little, a little of both worlds there on Substack. So I had no idea it was even capable of doing that. I didn't know that either. This person mentioned it. So I was like, hey, the New New York Times will read me the story, but I don't like it. I don't like it. (laughs) It takes too long. Today in Russia, Putin said, and I just don't, I don't like it. I can read much faster and I can skim things. And I don't don't need to be so thorough, particularly about depressing news. Maybe for our Substack, I would I would be fine with having it read to me slowly. Yeah. <laughs> but you can pick your speed. Can you pick your speed? I don't know. I've not tried it. I'm gonna have to try yeah. it and and see what it's like. It could be it could be a strange experience. Yeah, um, I'm a fast having, speed kind having of having your words read back to you. Like when you do your audiobooks, it's you. It's your voice. It's your writing, yeah. and so it all yeah. kind of jives in your yeah. head. But can you imagine someone else reading your books? No, I, I should be reading them. I'm I'm the opinionated fool who has all of these crazy things to say. So I feel it should be it should be me and only me. So I don't know. I, I take full responsibility. Stephen Derry looking at the text like I am not reading that. But also the the amount of names that there are and listening to some audiobooks and how these names are pronounced. I'll just I lose my mind. I'm like, no, not that we know how they're pronounced. Right. How is Akhenaten pronounced? We We don't know. But. You know, we, we have, have some our... accepted conventions. Yes, we do. We do. So, all right. All right. Let's dive into the questions. We're going to uh, start off with a question from Isabel about the Cleopatra documentary on Netflix, I'm assuming. The one that we've been discussing both on the Substack and in the part one of the Cleopatra episode. With the caveat that anytime we discuss this Netflix documentary, it is not about the Netflix documentary, which all of right. us Right. It's more about Cleopatra and... in general. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's or it's about identity, or it's about claiming antiquity, or it's about race in the ancient world, identity in the ancient world. All all of these very important subjects, and and then we we pan the documentary. <laughs> yes, 
Because it's not very good. It's the, it it's the cherry authentic. on top of the, the rest of yeah, the Cleopatra it's, it's Sunday. Really, it's pretty shitty. So, but anyway, as usual, dear listeners, I don't know the questions that Amber is about to ask me because this is my schedule in my life. So let's let's see how I do on the fly. But yeah, go ahead and give me this question. Here we go. So Isabel writes, in the infamous Cleopatra documentary, one of the scholars shares her opinion that Cleopatra and likely Mark Antony, would have been cremated rather than buried. What are your thoughts on the subject, and does it put a damper on the searches for the tomb of Cleopatra? Additionally, speaking of this search, what are your thoughts regarding the excavation by Dr. Kathleen Martinez at Taposiers Magna? Okay, so the first one about cremation versus burial, I, I would, I mean, it's always hard to speculate what people would have done in the ancient world when we have no evidence. And I always advise my graduate students and undergraduate students to be careful with their research questions and only ask questions that you can actually get an answer to. Asking a question like this is like asking, you know, what did Mark Antony feel when he was beaten in Parthia? We will never know. We are told he felt a certain way, but can we actually go into his mind and heart and understand it? No. Or, you know, what was Akhenaten's motivation for creating his new religion? People spill all kinds of ink on this and we'll, we'll never really know. So, you know, some research questions you can get into and some you can't. But since this is a podcast and <laughs> we're speculating, I'll say that I would be very surprised if these people were cremated. And let me break it up. I, first, I would be very surprised if Cleopatra was cremated because she is... Ruling a land where cremation is not geographically useful, where cremation is frowned upon as a means of destroying not just the body, but the soul. And I liked, and I did an Out of Egypt episode about this. If you want to go to Amazon and, and look at my Out of Egypt series that I did for Discovery, this is now 2008, so many, many years ago, that I, I made a a conclusion that things in terms of disposal of the body, that this we're talking about a geographic kind of determinism. It, it's not always geographic determinism because the sky burials of Central Asian steppes of Tibet, of mountainous regions where you can't cremate because there's no wood, where you can't bury because there's no earth, and you create a sky burial of chopping up the person and, and letting the vultures have at them. That that works in that geographic location, but when people from these Central Asian steppes, Parthian people, Tibetan peoples, or but really Parthian people is what we're talking about for movement, because we have this documented when they moved into India and they went to places like Mumbai, they created sky burials in the city of Mumbai in India because it served them ideologically. So burial methods disposal of the dead methods will be created through the geography of one particular place, and then they can be transferred ideologically. So which wins? The geography that you are in, and Cleopatra's family is not originally from this geography, but she is Cleopatra VII. So her Macedonian intermixed family, intermixed with Egyptians, arguably, and, uh, and others as well, has been there for some generations. It seems that if they take on the accoutrement of pharaonic power and show themselves with all of these crowns and garments and show themselves on temples as Cleopatra shows herself at Dendra, then they would also take on the burial 
culture as well. And Roman writing in Greek or in Latin suggests from the supposed story of Cleopatra's suicide, which I also give side eye to in my book, When Women Rolled the World, and suggest she was murdered by Octavian. Different question. But since there's so much discussion of her sepulcher, her future tomb, and and this tomb is presented in an orientalized, fetishized e- Egyptian way through a Roman propagandistic lens, one would argue that Cleopatra had already prepared a typical bodily non-cremation burial, that she was going to be buried with her body intact, with her body embalmed in the Egyptian way, and that that body would have been placed somewhere in Alexandria. So that's, that's my answer for that one. Marcus Antonius, Mark Antony, of course, is not Egyptian, and his family has not been living in Egypt for generations. And so you know, he's coming from a place where where cremation is the norm. And in Italy, where you have lots of wood, you have lots of fuel for burning, you don't have a lot of space in these urban locations to keep a whole body in the ground or in some kind of a tunneled area. This is going to become complicated with Christianity. That's another question for another time. But but, I, you know, the idea that Marcus Antonius's body is brought back to Rome and then cremated, I don't think that there would have been the potential to cremate or the will to cremate in Egypt, regardless of where he's coming from. I mean, maybe his soldiers would have done it for him. But Egypt is, is not rich in wood. There's not a lot of fuel to create a big funerary pyre. Where you see big funerary pyres are generally wetter places where you've got a lot of trees, you've got a lot of vegetation, you can build up a big funerary pyre. It's still a big show. Every time you dispose of a body, it has a social component and people are showing how much money they have, how much wealth, how much wood they're putting on the pyre, right? Whether they're including certain objects in their funerary pyre, whether they're bringing a boat with them and a Viking burial. I mean, one could go, could, could discuss this question of funerary disposal of the dead forever. Certainly I could. But you know, keeping a body intact and bringing it back to Rome when it takes a while to get around that Mediterranean coast and and get back to the Italian peninsula, this is not an easy thing. If they're bringing Marcus Antonius's body back, they're going to want to embalm it. No one wants a, a uh, putrid, yeah. right, Amber? I mean, what yeah. happens to a dead body? It's going it, to, you're, you're from the farm, you know, you you know, it's going to swell. It's not, it's not pretty and you don't want to travel not, with it. Not, that's for sure. No, no, Let me ask this question. Yeah. I think, would it, again, speculating, do you think it would be different if, say, the Roman propaganda, the Roman story is correct, and they're just simply losers, right, in the battle, like Octavian mm-hmm. wins? Mm-hmm. Or do you think if they were both murdered, do you mm-hmm. think that Octavian would have sort of, in a, in, a, in a manner of speaking, honored their wishes, like buried them in the manner? that they would have liked or mm-hmm. not, you know, because then yeah. they're, they're the rebels that I've defeated or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, as for Mark Antony killing himself, I'm, I'm not going to get all up in there and say that he didn't do it because this is a typical. It would be very Roman. Yeah. 
Yeah. It would be. It would be very patriarchal. It'd be very militaristic and masculine. You know, I've lost, I kill myself. I mean, you see this in in cultures independently all around the world. This is a this is a typical patriarchal masculine trope of war. And to assign that to Cleopatra as her means of death, I think is to masculinize her, is it is to defeminize her. It is to take her motherly care away from her and make her like a, a selfish being who's only interested in her own glory, remembrance, pain during death, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are many reasons why a suicide are assigned to her rather than a, a murder. I mean, Octavian doesn't want to be responsible for murdering either of them. Cleopatra, one, because he's murdering a woman. And even though she's been demonized and turned into a witch in the Roman propaganda, it's, it's still not a good look, right? And he knows it's not a good look. He's trying to take power. He's trying to win hearts and minds. It's not an awesome thing to gain your power and authority and be the first authoritarian ruler of Rome by murdering a woman. But having her kill herself or telling everyone that she killed herself, I mean, that's awesome. I think it works really well for him in terms of the the optics. And I think we can see that in the, in the text, which is why I am so leery and skeptical of anything that is written about Cleopatra and Roman-facing texts, which is almost all we have. Mark Antony, uh, oh, I, I think he's in a different part of North Africa, we are told, when he kills himself. So, sure, let's say he does kill himself, but then, you know, what? why would Octavian not give Mark Antony a loved war hero among his own people a proper burial? Again, not good optics, not a good way to take on an authoritarian or to create an authoritarian regime out of civil war in Rome. So I think he would have given a proper burial. And it's even possible that a proper burial in Egypt with Cleopatra would have served Octavian because then he can say, oh, he was taken in by this woman whom he loved, let them be together forever in their, you know, in whatever the gods give them in the afterlife, one can imagine something like that. So in short, I'm going to disagree with, with that part of the documentary and say that just circumstantially, we have no evidence for anything, right? But I'll say that they're almost certainly not cremated in Egypt, just for the the simple reason that cremation is very expensive in terms of resources that Egypt does not have. And two, that Octavian would have buried them. And three, let me add, because you get this Hollywood shit all the time, right, Amber, where they're mm-hmm. talking about the the people who have done bad things, they their bodies are destroyed. Have you ever seen any evidence for this anywhere in ancient Egypt, no. written or or material? Well, and in, in the Egyptian tradition, the the next ruler buries the former ruler. And so that burial, that funerary process, I imagine, is like part of that legitimization of the new ruler coming in. So like you say, it could be used by the, the incoming head of state ruler, I guess. And, um, and we, we do have evidence of rulers pushing somebody out of power, like Setnacht almost certainly took Tawasred out of power. And you move from Manetho's 19th dynasty to Manetho's 20th dynasty. And that's super interesting. But nowhere does Setnacht say that he, and he talks about this in oblique and poetic terms, or it is discussed in oblique and poetic terms in, in many a texts. But nowhere is it said or intimated that her body is destroyed so that her soul is no longer there. When you see bodily destruction of enemies, 
it is the hands being removed from the dead and the phalluses, penis is being removed from the enemy dead. You do see this in the reign of Ramses III, Setnach's son. It's not a cremation though, right? The Egyptians aren't going to take all of the enemy dead and cremate them so that they don't exist. It's a, it's a hell of a lot easier to just chop off their hands, chop off the penis, and they are emas- emasculated and and de-agencied. I, just, right I was just thinking of agency. Yeah, yeah. You've removed their their agency, both the their agency hands. of the hands and their reproductive organs. So Exactly. Their procreation, any way of yeah. becoming more in the next world. So that's a way of doing it. But you know, there's all these like in the mummy. So in a way, is that damning them though? Be you to take yeah, away in that... a way, yes, it could be. But they are clear others, clear enemies, clear threats. Um, yes. To the Ma'at. Right. And but you know, is Octavian gonna go all in with some weird Egyptian curse sort of um yeah, no, I mythology I agree. and I agree. I, yeah. No, no, and and cremation, if he you know, I could imagine, I suppose, the soldiers after Mark Antony kills himself being like, oh, we should give him a nice burial and we should cremate him. Well, they're on the coast of North Africa where there are no trees. So good luck with that. I don't think it would have happened. I think they would have they would have given him a sea burial or a, or a sandy beach burial. And I think that's probably what would have happened if they try to keep his body, then they better get some skilled people there to to uh, deal with it. And we All see it, we see yeah. evidence of that, right? There's Second Enrei Tao's body, 17th Dynasty, with a nice axe blow to the head. And his, his face shows that this was a traumatic death. This wasn't like a happy puppies and rainbows sort of death. And that body was brought back from a battlefield. And th- th- you can read in the Smith that it seems that the royal bodies, royal mummies by Smith, that that they got the body a little later, perhaps, than they would have liked. So, you know, the, these things were dealt with. In short, I I would never say such a thing on a documentary because you can't prove it. And somebody listening to this might be like, yeah, but you claim Cleopatra didn't commit suicide. All I'm saying is that, and, and I don't have any evidence for that either, but all I'm saying is that just because the Romans wrote it down didn't, doesn't make it true. And that there are many options in a political battle. And when you have political situations where somebody does take power after somebody else loses, you can speculate on what may have happened. And it's certainly clear that giving Cleopatra suicide served Octavian mighty well. And that makes me even more suspicious. So, you know, it's it'll never be proved one way or another. We'll never find their tombs, which leads to the next part of the question. Can you can you read that again for our listeners to remind us all? Oh, speaking of this search for the tomb of Cleopatra, what are your thoughts regarding the excavation by Dr. Kathleen Martinez at Taposiris Magna? Yeah, the only evidence that, that I've seen, well, I haven't seen any evidence that there's burials at this place. The only information that I have gleaned about this hypothesis is through documentary filmmaking, which I distrust immensely having been a part of documentaries myself, having seen how the sausage is made, there is no way I'm going to believe things from a documentary. I mean, sometimes documentaries are your only source of information or your best source of information. One example that comes to mind is the Osirion that exists on the Giza Plateau that Zahi Hawass brought everyone down into some 10 years ago in a documentary. And it's the best way to to view that space. Yes, he's published articles about that Osirion, but 
that documentary serves in being able to to see where the sarcophagus is in the water in the watery space that that hits groundwater what this may have been like but it's it's really hard to do the same with this particular theory that Antony and Cleopatra are buried in this in this delta place i i don't know how to answer this beyond that i haven't i haven't seen anything written or in ancient texts or in material culture that convinces me that this is something that we could move forward with. I think it makes a good story. And because documentaries are often so open-ended and don't provide a story conclusion, yeah, I think it makes for good TV. And I'll, I'll leave that one there. All right. So, you know, if we've learned anything, it is to be skeptical of documentaries. <laughs> Always been skeptical of documentaries, even if I'm in them, right? I didn't, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't make most of the document. I only made Out of Egypt. That's it. Out of Egypt is the documentary that I believe in most. It's the documentary that I wanted, that I did the way that I wanted to do it, but I made only six of them because the amount of labor and that, that went into it was just too much. I, I can't maintain that. So I made six, you know, documentaries about religion and violence, disposal of the dead, why there are pyramids all over the globe. It was a rip-roaring fun time. Even if I'm in the documentary, take it with a grain of salt and be very, be skeptical about what the agenda is of said documentary. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've said something that's nuanced and, in my opinion, interesting and moves the story forward. And that is not taken, but some aside that is more salacious, that's the thing that's put in. It happens all the time. True. All right. So next question related to Cleopatra comes from Joshua. And he says, I like pop culture. Uh, I also don't read too much into potential connotations as to whether or not it's offensive or not. With regards to the Cleopatra thing, I understand if you want to call it a documentary, then you should be as close as possible to the known facts. But it has been stated that facts are not truths. So I understand the casting argument there. With regard to an obvious disdain for Assassin's Creed, a game and a story I actually enjoy, I don't understand the negative here. It is not designed to be a 100% replica and is in and of itself a science fiction, using historical names and places as reference, and attempting to be close but in no way are they trying to be accurate by any means on any time frame they've used. I find it very easy to separate what I see as a work of entertainment versus a work of scholarly debate. I do not think, for instance, using Out of Egypt as research material on a bibliography for a paper would be the best choice, but a direct interview with Kara on the same topics may result in the same answers and be more acceptable for an academic context. So I guess the question is, what is your cutoff for historical accuracy regarding entertainment media? versus an accepted scholarly media. I hope that I'm asking that right. <laughs> he, he says, I like the Ben Kingsley King Tut series, but I look at it as entertainment with influence, not as fact or a direct attempt to show accuracy. So well, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think Josh is unusual in that he's able to look at all of these things with skepticism and say, oh, this is just entertainment. It wouldn't have necessarily been that way. But when you show this to a seven-year-old kid. Exactly. Yes. That's <laughs> just what I was about to say, because people believe it. They see it in yeah. a video game. They see it on TV. They see it on a screen of some sort and they give it legitimacy. 
and they believe what they see. Yeah. And that's that's where the debate, I think, comes in, because absolutely more educated, more mature people can look at things and, you know, discern whether or not it's entertainment or academic or maybe somewhere in the middle. But the problem is, is that really a large segment of the audience can't or doesn't take the time to to get that nuanced. And I can't tell you how many times that I have talked to somebody in the entertainment industry and they're like, oh, you know, it doesn't have to be right. It's just entertainment. And I'm like, how hard would it have been for you to include? It's not set up in their system to include the authenticator, the expert, the 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 person that's going to be there to give how the okay. hard is it not to put pyramids <laughs> in Luxor? It's it's so true. I mean, there are going to be pyramids. Yes, they're still there today. So there are pyramids in Egypt, but you don't have to put them in Luxor. You don't have you can show how long it takes to geographically get from one place to another. I, I understand that cuts need to be made and they're like, it's fine. No one will no one will care. But, you know, when you've got people riding horseback in in an Egypt doc in an Egypt uh, miniseries or film, it's hugely problematic and it's hugely Eurocentric. And isn't it kind of fun and more interesting to have the chariot instead? Is that just too expensive for the Hollywood producer and they can't deal with it? But, you know, chariots are cool. And I would rather see a chariot being driven around rather than having somebody on horseback in a European fashion that just being the assumption. So, that, you know, so that that's that's part of my answer there. But for the Assassin's Creed. Yeah, video games are video games, and I totally get your point that. It doesn't have to be exactly right, but video games are, okay, I'll say two things. One, Ubisoft set up part of this video game as an educational experience, purposefully sold it as such, build it as such, said that you don't have to play the game to win and murder. You can play the game to learn. And then they put horrible information about how a body is mummified, how a woman ruled what what their what Cleopatra's agenda and modus operandi potentially were and misogynistic information at that. And and this is what you're exposed to. So if you're going to if you're going to have an educational format in your game, then you should make the whole game something that's that's been carefully vetted and authenticated by somebody who's consulting on the project and who knows what the hell they're talking about. Well, and I would argue whether it's entertainment or not, it's fair game to call out misogyny and sexism. And to Well, that's my that second out. point. It's yeah. my second point because Amber, you know, your boys are playing video games. Mm -hmm. You you know how in these game rooms, in these chat rooms, in the video game world, in the game itself, how misogynistic the game is. And this is something that you see in the same way that entertainment People are like, oh, it's just entertainment. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be authentic. You'll have a video game person going, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's it's fine. It's, you know, we're just playing to our audience. And that's, there's something to be said there, but you're also alienating a potential audience of women and non-binary people who would like to be associated or be a part of some of these games. And it's not that, and then there might be people listening to this going, but misogyny existed in the ancient world and hells yes, it did. So misogyny existed in the ancient world, but that doesn't mean that we need to just accept it hook, line, and sinker that Cleopatra was this man-eating 
bitch. There, there are more nuanced ways of discussing her power, much more interesting ways. And working with that misogyny in the ancient world or pre-modern world in, in a way that the gamer can overcome or, or deal with. And I'm not trying to make this all, you know, that we, we have to walk on eggshells by no means. All of these things can be, can be discussed, but outright misogyny is apparent in, in the Ubisoft version of Assassin's Creed, Cleopatra's story in particular. And I think that we should have people speaking up and, and, and saying something about that. So yeah, entertainment is entertainment and that's all great. But when nobody reads a goddamn book anymore and all they do is entertainment, we better try to get in there somehow. Yeah, and, or when and, people and, start taking entertainment as fact. It's true. And there's that. But let me end with this. And this is where I, I'm going to get on my soapbox and say that authenticity is fucking interesting. It's, mm-hmm. it's really cool. And the stories that we tell over and over again of Cleopatra's a bitch and Tutankhamun was murdered and, you know, all of this stuff is just, it's getting tired. It's boring. It's old. And if you try to actually tell a story that's complicated and with nuance and try to get it right, then people will be diverted and entertained by something that they did not expect. And it will be that much richer for it in the same way that you know, you had all of these futuristic television shows where every spaceship was gleaming and perfect. And then Star Wars came along and it was beat up and dirty and gross. And you had hustlers and smugglers involved. How cool. And people are like, oh my God, look at this. And it's authentic. It's giving a humanity and an authenticity to something that people didn't expect because they changed up the story. So I would just encourage anybody out there who's making entertainment using the ancient world. And there's a whole hell of a lot of it because damn, is there a desire and an audience for this information? If you try to do it right, as far as we know, and who knows what right is, who knows what truth is, right? It is, we don't have time machines. We can't prove it. But if you try, it will be that much more interesting to an audience than not. So please do try. Try. I agree. All right. Let's look at what we have next. So Matt writes, 20 years ago, would female and LGBTQ Egyptology students learn many identity positive insights from the study of ancient Egyptian culture? No. (laughs) Speculate 40 years into the future as more gender and sex diverse academics pour over the data of Egyptian culture and connect with their students. How much more inclusive of various cultural identities will Egyptology become? I mean, the first part will... We'll hit that second. But the the second part, I think that gender and sexuality appearing on a gradient is something that humanity is being confronted with now everywhere. And though many would like to force a binary, whether in a bathroom or on a sports field or in other venues, the binary does not exist. And if you talk to a sexual biologist and you look at how sex expresses itself, and I'm talking about sex, I'm talking about, you know, sex organs and what, what people are able to do, what, what it's really complicated. And there, there are, it's much more complicated than we thought. So if you're like, oh, but I've had a baby. Well, if you do your genetic sexual expression markers, you might find that you're more masculine than you thought on the gradient of human sexuality. Sexuality is, is, it's just very, very complicated. And as 
I think we're all grappling with this as we abandon or move against imposed patriarchal structures of the binary and sexuality by not putting ourselves into traditional marriages, by delaying such marriages, by delaying childbirth, by not having children at all and choosing to be childless. All of these uh, opt-outs, if that's a noun, that people are expressing right now in an anti-patriarchal way, these things are happening mainly in, well, they're happening everywhere. You could say they're even happening in in very traditional patriarchal societies. If I go to Egypt, a very traditional patriarchal society where being non-binary or gay is dangerous to one's livelihood and socially unacceptable, you still see people marrying later, much later than they would have 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, deciding to have one child, deciding to have children later, And these things are happening for economic reasons. They're happening for career reasons. Women are a part of the career industry and and want to have power in in that place. So I would say that all of this trickles down into academic study because there is no way that we academics do not impose our own ideas on the past that we are studying. Anyone who says that there is an apolitical study of the past is wrong. (laughs) There's no such thing. And even if it seems apolitical, that generally means that the person who is studying a particular culture without anger or pushing back or having a big opinion on something, they're doing it from a dominant cultural perspective. So they don't need to, to bring any of that energy. I would say that, you know, this is, these new ideas of what it means to be a human being in terms of sexuality and then gender expression are going to filter down into every academic discourse and every academic discussion of the past. And we're going to bring those ideas. And I would say that that certainly started 20 years ago when people started to ask, oh, who was gay in the ancient world? Who was queer? If you, if, if, it's a better word. It was who was queer in the ancient world. People started to apply this question to people like Hatshepsut, who dressed as a man to claim her, to claim kingship, which was a more masculine role in a patriarchal society. And so, you know, these things started, I would say, about 20 years ago. I mean, Amber, do you think you would push it back a little bit? I know. I mean, you could argue, you know, back in the the nineties, there's their inroads started to be made, but to actually see it in academia, I would agree. I think it did take into the early two thousands. I just want to anything. Yeah, you just went to the nineties, which is thirty years ago, which is terrifying, and the odds is twenty years ago, and I don't even know what to do. But visibility started to increase in the nineties. Ellen, Will and Grace, you Mm -hmm. know, as far as pop culture goes. Yeah. Uh, but to actually see it begin to filter into the way we see ourselves, humanity, that kind of thing, I think that that didn't start to really enter pop culture or academia until at, at least the early 2000s, maybe a little bit later. But I think the biggest takeaway is just we may not be able to answer specific questions about identity in the ancient world. But as you do with, say, the good kings, we can just simply start to question the patriarchal narratives, the things that we have mm-hmm. taken for granted in the past as simply given and to, you know, simply acknowledge that, well, maybe not. You know, that's a narrative constructed 
with the patriarchal interests in mind. And to simply question that, I think, gets us to a very different place. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what, what you're saying is that with the gender and sexuality expression that we know exists in the human genome, that hasn't changed. <laughs> That's, yeah. We're, we're, like we're we know still... it must have existed, but the, to, to be able to answer how was it expressed, how was it viewed by society, how did people feel about it or themselves is an unanswerable question. Yeah. So the, the, the point is, is that today social systems in some places are allowing a gender and sexuality expression that would have already existed two, three, four or five thousand years ago, but you couldn't express it. And so you as the historian will be looking at texts and understanding how powerful patriarchal systems are at suppressing such identity expressions, knowing that and yet knowing that queerness, however you define it, is going to exist in the ancient world. How do you how do you identify it? How do you pinpoint it? This is really tricky. And and I haven't found a, a good way to to really go after this. Hatshepsut doesn't work for me because it's an imposition of a patriarchal role. She has to dress like a man in the way we have to put on a pantsuit to go into the corporate boardroom of the men, right? So that's Yeah, her expression wasn't a a demonstration of freedom. It was to fit herself into the patriarchal mold. I agree. I agree. But then when you look at somebody like the, the old kingdom tomb, this is an old chestnut, the old kingdom tomb of Neok Knum and Knum Hotep, which is pulled out again and again as an example of, of homosexual lovers because they're kissing in the tomb very close to one another. Is this an expression of queerness in, in elite tomb art? Or is it, as David O'Connor argued, Siamese twins? Or is it that they're brothers, right? <laughs> there's no way, there's no way to know. I mean, David O'Connor's, he was so brave, you know, to go out and make the Siamese twins argument, the homosexual argument. That is, a, that is a difference. There are scholars who are willing to, to, to be able to step out and ask those questions now, right. whereas in the past, they may have, you know, for career reasons and that sort of thing, maybe stepped away from, from those kind of research yeah. topics. But that is becoming far more acceptable and actually, you know, seen as something that we should be doing. Yeah. But but seeing them as queer is completely possible, too. It's a weird tomb. It's a really weird space. And I don't know quite what to do with it either. And then you're like, oh, OK, was this actually allowed? Um, yeah, it gets really I, complicated I, because then the question becomes, well, then how do you define queer? Not even just today, but also looking back at the past. I think it's really complicated. I mean, think of the Book of Queer documentary that, that you did where they discuss even Abraham Lincoln, which really mm-hmm. not that far in the past. And still very much a mystery to us. And we have his own writings. We have far more historical information about him. And it's still a question. You know, you can look at the evidence. You can say, you know, here's evidence on this side. Here's evidence on that side. But again, these questions of identity and how somebody actually, what they were thinking, what they were feeling is just something that we can't really get at without them explicitly leaving some sort of a written record. And even then, you have to ask, why are they writing it? Who's their audience? Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I'm going to end this with with an Allie Ward quote. It's not her quote, but it's one of her guests. Oh, from Ologies? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a guest on on sexual neurology. 
And he was talking about gene expressions in mice, gene expressions in humans, the differences, you know, how, how we express gender and sexuality. And humans are extraordinarily queer in comparison to other lower mammals, if we want to use that hierarchy and say that we're better than mice. This person was saying that humans are all a little bit queer. All of us. You, Amber, me, Jordan from afar, all of us are a little bit queer and that we should expect nothing else. And to look at the the way gender and sexuality is expressed and depicted in the past is more of an economic reality of patriarchal structures than anything else. Certainly nothing about what people were doing in the privacy of their own homes and spaces sexually. We will never know these things. We can't ever know these things. So I I would just go with that and understand that if humanity itself is a very queer mammal, humans are very queer mammals, then it it should be expected that these things, these sexual expressions were happening bodily in private in, in, in the ancient world and that it was not memorialized, monumentalized written about or discussed in the same way that people don't write and monumentalize their own personal sex lives today. The odd dick pic aside. Yeah, well, hey, nobody wants on record what happens in their college dorm room. That's all I got to say. You know, it's and the the same goes for any other space behind closed doors throughout history. Nobody wants to leave a record of that. And and it's, it's you know their what? personal private you know, yeah. experience of life. Like there are books written about about how people went to the bathroom in the ancient world. And good luck trying to figure that out for most places. Most places don't write letters about it. They're not like, this is my method of of cleaning myself after I go to the bathroom. They're not gonna say this. Yes, in Rome, you've got latrines and you've got sponges on sticks, and that's awesome that we know that. But it's unusual to have that much information. We do not have that information for Egypt. We actually don't know how these these very basic bodily things function. We have ideas about birth because birth is such a liminal, dangerous rite de passage. We We have representations of death, another rite of passage. But sex is something that most people don't like to depict or share, certainly about themselves. They might like to watch others do it. Then they might be nosy about it. And we're being nosy right now by asking what things were like three, four or 5,000 years ago, because that's, we're all curious, right? People don't record these things. It's not something that we'll, we'll ever really know. So again, if you're going to hypothesize, just assume that humans are very much like they are now. And for everyone freaking out, on the right, saying that people are being made gay. People are not being made gay. This is just the way people. As I was gonna say, we're just seeing always, humanity more honestly than we have in the past. And we've always been queer. We've always been queer, but now we are able to economically and socially express it, and that's where things are very destabilizing for for people socially today because it goes against church mores, religious I- ideology patriotic expression, ideology of what it is to be a man or a woman, all of these things, particularly in a, in a time when the gender binary is really making a comeback. There, there is a lot of pushback against being queer right now from many quarters of the world. So you could argue you see that in academia now too. 
it's it's interesting. Lots more control over people's bodies. All of the anti-abortion laws being passed in the United States. Um, There's always a backlash, yeah. but those new ideas have still been introduced, and so we can really hope, with, especially with the younger generations, that they're going to have a very different perspective by the time they, you know, start to get their hands on the uh, levers of power, so to speak. Yeah, but I just you you have a really important point, Amber, that that backlash is what we're feeling right now. And I don't want to impose a teleological upward trend of enlightenment among humans in the future. This is not the way things work. Things work in a cyclical way. We come back around to things we have done before and backlashes are real and uh, impositions of strictures that had not been imposed or, or, or maintained come back. So mm-hmm. right now we we're looking around the world and seeing that control of female bodies and imposition of certain binary roles is being demanded in cultures in countries like the United States. And yeah. there's a, a definite push and pull in history. Yeah. Yeah. And that affects academics. So if you're a professor teaching in Florida or Texas with these kinds of laws on the books yeah, and you're going to get Michelangelo's a- David. Exactly. You can't show that ancient dick pic that Michelangelo's David. You cannot. You you can't discuss things in a certain way without potentially being potentially at harm in in your classroom Lose space. Your livelihood, you know, yeah. be be publicly subject to threats, mm-hmm. harassment, you know, yeah. whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. And so what some academic or teacher, instructor thinks may not be expressed because they're in a society that does not support that free expression anymore. And so the the pushback is real and it's happening now. And for for anybody who has colleagues in in places like Texas or Florida, Alabama, I mean this this is it's very hard right now. So so let's let's avoid looking at things as an upward trend. I would say that um we're we're not able to discuss these things very openly at this time period. All right. Well, we are going to take a right turn to a question about furniture and tomb goods. Love it. Yeah. This question comes from Paul, who says, most boxes for tomb goods use a closure system consisting of two knobs wrapped with string, often with a ceiling putty packed over. Is there a term for this? It seems like the same closure system was used for toiletry and jewelry boxes meant for daily use. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on its practicality. Would someone wrap the cords every time the box was left unintended? It's only the sort of lock meant to keep out, quote unquote, honest people like servants or roommates. But even so, it seems hardly worth the trouble since the knot would need to be easily undone by the box's owner. Or were they not locked day to day and the knobs installed with the idea that the box would ultimately go with you to your grave and be sealed properly at that time? Or were these boxes specifically made for interments and never actually used uh, as housewares in daily life? Specifically, he's mentioning um, a, a small middle uh, to New Kingdom sliding box lids uh, that we see and the very fancy mirror cosmetic case in the Met with the dovetail drawer. And then he tacks on one more question. He'd love to hear about anyone who's studying furniture and houseware specifically. So he found the Killen books. Yeah. But he's wondering what else is out there. I would look to the carpentry work of a former PhD student of mine, Carrie Arbuckle McLeod, 
She works mostly with coffins, but coffins is where so much of our woodworking and joinery is preserved. Her dissertation should be available where dissertations are available. How could somebody get a dissertation, Amber, if they don't have a university uh, library or account? I think, yeah, Would they, well, without it. Like you could go to ProQuest and then maybe buy that dissertation as a book? Maybe, yeah. I've never tried to do it without being connected to a, a university VPN. Right. Uh, but I should also add, Paul is a woodworker, and we actually okay. featured his work on the last Substack, Ancient Now post. He reconstructed that ancient Egyptian chair, and he's done a couple oh. of other projects that he featured on his blog. So this is a question coming from someone who's just trying to understand how these things were put together. How do they work? How how are they practically used in, in everyday life? Or were they? Were they simply tomb goods? Okay, th this is great. I don't know what the mechanism is called, if there is a particular name for it. If it's like double knob locking, double knob string locking. I think you could make one up for, for this. You know, it, it, but it brings up the idea of locking, which I suppose we, we should get to first. The, the idea of locking something in the ancient world when you don't have like a tumbler lock or a lock where you need to insert a specific device that matches a certain code so that you can turn it and get in. We, we don't have these things for pharaonic Egypt. Um, I think, you know, there's discussion of when tum tumbler locks were invented and this is not my jam. So you guys can all research this and see when the first evidence is. I think it's pretty late, but you might have some late period Egyptian tumbler locks. I don't know. But for most of pharaonic Egypt, we're dealing with seals. In most of the ancient world, you're dealing with seals. So whether you're in Mesopotamia or you're in Egypt or even in, in Greece and Rome, if you want to know that something hasn't been opened and you want to be sure that it's secure, you would tie it with string and it could be a papyrus. It could be this box that you're talking about where you have a knob on the top lid and then a knob on the front. You take your string and you, you wrap it around like in a figure eight, like an infinity sign. And then you, you put some mud on that and you seal it. This mechanism of sealing is a social locking. It's not going to stop anyone from opening the box. It's not going to stop anyone from opening the papyrus roll. Whatever, whatever it is you're trying to lock, it's not going to stop anyone from opening a particular wine jar or unguent jar. It's only going to create a social code and social sign such that it has been opened. And then the rest of your social security measures come into play. So if you see that the treasury door seal has been breached, then everyone gets rounded up the, in the temple who are in charge of that treasury from the top down. And the person whose seal it was is the one most responsible. Where was he? Why was he not there? Did he break the seal? What's, what's going on? If, if somebody's seal is used to relock something, that person is, is now persona, is person number one in terms of suspects, right? So th this is the way that you would lock things in the ancient world. And then you can imagine all of the social mechanisms that would come into play. I mean, Amber, you know, locks don't, locks are never a hundred percent, right? You no, can... Well, I mean, even in the digital world, you know, yeah, we keep yeah. having to invent new ways to try to secure digital data because it's like locks were invented to be 
bypassed or to yeah. overcome. And how long did you and I spend yesterday on a password oh, to get into a particular Don't even get me started on that. Like that was that was my fault. I forgot what I did, which is <laughs> always a problem. Well, Amber makes everything super secure because because she's she's always like someone's going to get in here, and that's awesome. So she made it super secure, but then we couldn't get into our own space, right? So, but we did eventually. But the, you know, there's no such thing as a failsafe lock. It doesn't exist. This is why we all like watching Ocean's Eleven. It's it's kind of cool to see how these securities can be breached. And really, the the social the security is social. That's what it is. It's social yeah. systems. And when those social systems break down and you have corruption and you have people skimming off the top, then you know, you're you're well, gonna have no matter what these types of artifacts that he's talking about, you know, they're made of wood, they're elite you know, objects. And so there's a certain social status that this owner would have had as well. Right. And so it's not as if they are probably living in a completely unsecured environment, right? It's probably a nicer residence, servants, you know, people around. Like this is probably someone who, you know, had something to protect, you know, wealth, jewelry, you know, that sort of thing, but also not without the resources to protect it in other ways, you know, aside from string and you know, putty. But the box is made with knobs. He's right. The mm-hmm. box is made with knobs, which means that said rich person who commissioned the box made with knobs is going to put awesome shit in the box made with knobs. And when he or she is not using that box, they are going to probably ask the servant to put this string on it so they can see it, so they can put the mud seal. And then that might be broken every morning that you open up the box to get your special unguent or your special jewelry or your special scribal palette or whatever it is so that people can't steal your your shit. So it it, it proves a potential distrust of servants mm-hmm. in the ancient world as much as you often see it in the modern world. And servants, there's a wonderful book by James C. Scott called Weapons of the Week, which shows how people of lower hierarchies are always stealing from their betters. And they often don't feel bad about it because of the hierarchical inequalities that are built into their system. And and this is a method of resistance. It's a method of getting back what is yours, arguably, in your own mind. But rich people are like, how dare these people come and steal my things? And so they are going to lock their nice boxes. So typically, a carpentry question is brought up, Amber, and I have made it Marxist. <laughs> I have gone for the I'm Marxist. so Social, shocked. How did we get here? Answer. And distrust within society and social inequality and how these boxes, you could, you could write, oh my God, how fun. You could write a whole study and do a whole article about this kind of material culture is representative of social inequality and, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and social distrust. Social stratification yes. that requires locks and protection of excess yes. resources. And social distrust, right? In the same way we all have our passwords and and we you can make comparisons to today. I mean, it's 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 super interesting to think about it from from that social perspective. Because what are locks? I mean, the other thing that you would protect too would be information. I mean, this is these are the type of objects, yeah, that would have probably held other things, Mm -hmm. but there were also seals on documents and you know, places where you stored documents, I'm sure, that were also secured. And so it's about stuff and information. For instance, there's an amazing treasure trove of documents called Pyrus Dural Medina, published by Yaroslav Cherny, among others. 
And in the Papyrus Daryl Medina collection, which are now spread out over different museums, they were all found ostensibly at the site of Daryl Medina, this artisan's village. And there are letters in there from a general that says, now go get those two policemen. And if they've been telling this story that I've heard they're telling, then I need you to kill them and put them in baskets and throw them in the river. And these, there are three versions of this order given by the general to three different people. And they're all in this Papyrus Daryl Medina documentation trove that have now found themselves in different museums today because of colonial, because colonialism and they've taken them. But how cool to think of these letters as having been safeguarded and kept by Daryl Medina artisans as weapons, potential weapons of the future to use against their social betters, these generals, and to say, I've got this on you. Don't fuck with me, because if you do, then I'm going to unleash this information. And where did they keep such scrolls? Where did they keep such letters? Maybe in such a locked box so that they knew no one else was looking at it. Maybe they put it in their, their family tomb. I'd put something like that in my family tomb, maybe in a locked box. So yeah, there, there's all kinds of interesting things that one can put in these, in these boxes. I love it. Paul's like, wait, I asked about wood. <laughs> I asked about wood. Oh, and then Paul was asking, like, you know, were these daily life objects? Were they only for for death? I would say they're daily life objects. Yes. The ones with the knobs and the string, they're not made just for the tomb. They're made for for living and they're part of those social systems. And then they end up going into the tomb. So so I'm wondering if because there are boxes made for funerary purposes, specific funerary purposes that would not have hung around during life. And that would be like a box for Shakti's, the worker figurines who are meant to be called and to answer to work in the next life. And those have knobs on the top. I wonder if they have knobs on the side to lock it. And if there was a locking mechanism that was used, but then if you lock it, can your Shakti's not like pop out and do work for you? I don't know. This is, this is a research question that one could take, take up and see if Shakti boxes have locks on them in this way. And then other boxes for the afterlife. I mean, there's, it's not, it's kind of a box. It's like the, the toss oak or. Could the lock also have been practical to keep that lid from flopping open when it's being moved? Sure. But the Egyptians were pretty good at creating an inset for those lids Mm. so that it, it fits in, in the manner of a box. And it does, it's not just there a flat and moving around. So they wouldn't necessarily have needed that. But I'm thinking also of the Tasokar Osiris statues that stand upon a box and inside of that box was a papyrus. And I wonder if those were locked. So these are, these are questions that would demand more research. And we encourage Paul to get on his way and look at Shopti boxes and Tasokar Osiris base boxes and see if there are locks in existence on those. That, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a, a cool question. Interesting thing to to think about for sure. Oh, and one other big box is a coffin or a shrine. And of course you right? bring up the coffin. I have to, right? And what's the most famous example of such a lock being sealed is on Tutankhamun's shrines. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Each one has the rope going around the, the knobs. It's tied and it's got mud and it's sealed. So 
with the with the seal of the necropolis. So that's a that's a big box made for a very specific purpose. There's all kinds but of definitely boxes meant to be a one time we're locking this thing. Well, yeah. In theory. But did that work? No, because we know that Tutankhamun reused all this funerary well, stuff. Well, and what did about, it? you know, the, you know, priests of Amun later on going back in mm-hmm. and they're searching for their silver and gold in the valley? Yeah. Which, and, and what was this Ostracon that was just found, Amber? 21st threat? Dynasty date. Shoot, I forget. It, it was an official of, of some sort basically offering up a prayer to Amun Ray, like, you know, please aid my search for silver and gold. So some, Evidence of systematic looting there, perhaps. Not perhaps. I mean, okay, I'm for sure. For, yes, I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but yeah, ninety-five deniers security. like they're they're sinking now. Yeah. Like the evidence for reuse is just piling up. Yeah, it is. It is. So it, that that's that's a pretty cool Ostracon find. We can put that in show notes for for this because it's it's awesome. Because I don't remember the author, and I I just know the the information from the Ostracon. So. Anyway. Um, All right. Yeah. Next question. This one comes from our patron discord from Noir88, who asks, I just listened to the body shaming episode and the Queen of Punt came up. You're the experts. Can I put it, my two cents in and get your opinion? Since that Shepset was Pharaoh and portrayed herself as a man and a woman had no equal power in Egypt and certainly not in other parts of the ancient world, I why would she make the Queen of Punt look grotesque to show her superiority? Would she not choose a king, as in a male ruler, to make him look inferior? Unless perhaps the Queen of Punt was actually the primary ruler. So why, the question is basically, why would Hatshepsut not compare herself to a male ruler as opposed to the Queen of Punt, who's female, since Hatshepsut herself was trying to, you know, portray herself as a, as a male ruler? Yeah, there's so many layers to this question, but I'll start out with my pithy response, which is that within a patriarchy, women are not loyal to each other. Ouch. There is no sisterhood. We don't help each other out. We harm each other. We are set up to harm each other in competition for the scarce resources coming from the men. So women in positions of power today, yesterday, female CEO, a female king is not going to become a feminist who is looking out for her sisters, but is going to be looking out for her own power. So how she denigrates other women is, is immaterial within a patriarchal system. If we lived in anything but a patriarchal system, then I think we would have a different discussion. But we don't. We live in a patriarchal system and Hatshepsut's story is as much of a tragedy as anybody else's. She is, she is made to become that which would not allow her to be king and, and then become that and impose it on others. And that is, it's, it's an issue. I, it's complicated too that I don't think it's super clear that Hatshepsut is dressing like a man just because the kingship demands it. I think she's dressing like a man because she's serving with a co-king, Tutmos III, her nephew, who's getting stronger and more strapping by the day. And so she's competing in, an, in the optics and perception of power with this 
16, 17, 18 year old kid and king. <laughs> and so she needs to depict herself in the primary position of power vis-a-vis -vis this co-king. But to show herself as a woman doesn't work within a patriarchal system. And that's why she shows herself arguably as a man, not because the kingship demands it. The kingship didn't demand it. She shows herself as a female king at the beginning of her reign when Thomas the third is young. So yeah. But but then what the motivations are for depicting the Queen of Punt in this way, I don't think we know. This is another speculation question, which is fine. And and I have some ideas on this. I I, you know, there's body shaming inherent in this. It's true. But she's also shown as a woman of great power who's connecting with the envoy from Egypt and is doing the negotiations and the deal making with that envoy and sending all of these amazing goods. And so she's she's depicted as grotesque, but as powerful and so socially important simultaneously. So why would somebody do something like that? And she's standing next to her co-ruler or husband or king or whatever you, you want to call him, the chief, who is not depicted with a grotesque body or a strange body. And they're at equal scales, I believe, though his body is much smaller than hers. So she's shown in a more obese fashion. They're, they're, they're as leaders. Her grotesqueness, I would argue, is a way of showing some local color. It's exactly. a way of yeah. proving that they went there. this exotic, like, you know, far off place mm -hmm. and that, who, that has this queen. Because they could have, they're Egyptians, right? They could have simply chosen to to show her with whatever kind of body they wanted. They they could yeah. have just simply represented a, a female ruler, but they wanted to yeah. add this this, as you say, this this bit of local color, this sort of exotic far off, or the queen of this exotic far off land. And and the whole point scene is full of this. You see all kinds. I call it a kind of defensiveness or insecurity in the. They're presenting these things on the walls of her temple of millions of years, all the while stating, no, we really went there. We really mm -hmm. went there. Here's our proof. Here's a real fish that you only get from the Red Sea in all of its detail. Here's a real tree that you only get from the sacred land of Punt in all of its detail. Here's the real chieftainess in all of her detail. And then there's stories coming back like, oh, she was this massive woman. And remember that you know, it, it is a kind of body shaming, but at the same time, it's showing her power to consume more than is necessary for a human body. And the richness of this, to be, of this far off land. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This land is so rich that you've got massively fat people, which is an unusual thing in the ancient world. It's not something that is that is the norm. Well, so part of this, too, was Hatshepsut saying, look, we, we went to this very rich, far off place and look at all we have brought back for Egypt. Yeah. You know, look yeah. at what Hatshepsut is bringing back, you know, to Egypt. Yeah. From the riches Wealth, of fecundity, this, this place. Yes. Bounty, overflowing bounty. So at the same time that we could be talking about a body shaming, and when we're talking about the Queen of Punt, the body shaming comes as much from modern academia, if not more so. So what the ancient perspective was on the Queen of Punt, I'm not sure... If it, you know, we, we talked about this in the body shaming episode. I think Egyptologists are guilty of the body shaming for certain. The way we present her in this grotesque way and talk about her, associate her with 
parts of Africa. And I, I think that's where it gets the most gross. What the Egyptians were trying to do, I'm actually not quite sure, except show that there's an overflowing bounty coming from this land. Yeah, well, like you say, it's but, it's difficult yeah. to assign motivation to the Egyptians mm -hmm. outside of the very practical, political, and you know, economic reasons for showing the land of Punt. Period. Yeah, but but we're definitely talking about a a person of power depicted in a really weird way, so that people can say, "No, no, we actually saw this, and mm -hmm. it looked exactly like this." And they the artisans went to the guy who, who met with the woman and was like, "Now tell me exactly what she looked like. I'm going to do a sketch. Does it look like?" And I'm not saying the Dear Medina sketch or the West Theban sketch is this. It's not. It's a 20th Dynasty sketch, almost certainly. But but in the 18th Dynasty, we would be like, "Okay, what what did?" that woman look like and give us an eyewitness account. And they probably gave an eyewitness account to the female King Hatshepsut, who then was like, I want that in there. I, I want that detail in there because that's that's a really cool detail. And it's yeah. it's also showing that Hatshepsut is interested in entertaining her elites who would have been in this space, that there is an agenda to divert and to get people to to see her as a ruler who's interested in People not only having a you know all of this incense and having their nice clean teeth and her bringing all of this wonderful stuff for them, but also her ability to tell a good story. Yeah, and you have to look at this as somebody. a curated Instagram story of the the yes. expedition to Punt. You know, yeah, very. She's being very calculated and, and very thoughtful about what she's showing and what she's not. And if she's not the one that's commissioning this, then one of her chief aides is doing this and is saying, you know, we want that detail in there. Put that detail in there because it's so yeah. cool and everyone's heard about it. And we want the people who visit this to go like, oh, my God, this woman is in there. We heard about this. Yeah, we can't and forget it it's a highly it curated more, space. Yeah. 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 But it makes it that much cooler. So when the elites go there, they're like, oh, my God, they put it in, you know, and everyone's going to have their their little moment of seeing it. And they look at each other and, oh, I can't, it's it's like going to a. A, a fabulous party or a fancy movie or what, whatever exclusive thing that that people get to see it's that way of impressing other people so it's 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 an attempt to create social power in in some way by showing this woman the woman herself is back in punt doesn't isn't going to notice this it's not going to hurt her she's used as a token as a pawn in somebody else's storytelling in the same way that, you know, maybe Elizabeth I would have commissioned a play and, you know, wanted a certain And who knows, the, the people of Ponte may have used this Egyptian expedition to mm -hmm. their land in a similar way. Yeah. You know, I and mean, think of all the things they got in return, those two powerful mm -hmm. people. And then the stories that they told for generations thereafter about, you know, all, all of the wealth that they've been given for a bunch of trees. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, very, very interesting question. And so we, we have our two final questions are from Isabel. And the first one has to do with Akhenaten's motives for promoting the Aten as the primary or sole deity during his reign. And she wants to know uh, if the theory that he did this in part because the priests of Amun had become too powerful, if there's anything to that. And yeah. Your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, Isabel, I would encourage you to look at the chapter on Akhenaten in my book, The Good Kings, where essentially the whole chapter is me trying to figure this out, is what, why would 
this man do this? What are the motivations in terms of power, in terms of ideology, ideological power? And it's, it's a complicated argument, very complicated argument. Again, we can only ask research questions that we can answer, right? We can't be like, you know, did he get in a fight with the high priest of Amun at Thebes? And then he was like, I'm going to chisel out all these names. And, or, you know, we, we don't know. We're not going to know the actual occurrences. We're not going to know what was in his mind. We're not going to know. Compared to other rulers of Egypt, though, Akhenaten did sort of try to lay out his plan, right? Or at least what he wanted mm-hmm. to do, like practically speaking, maybe not necessarily letting us in on the, you know, intimate thoughts that he had, but he definitely had in his boundary stila, right? He had plans and he was making them known. He had plans in his boundary stila. He's, those boundary stila are so vague. Mm-hmm. And there's like, it's so passive voicey. There's all this danger coming at you, but from where? And the enemy Because he was trying to stated. appeal, I think, to a broad base of people. Well, a broad base of whoever could read it, at least. A broad base of his people, mm-hmm. right? So it's, uh, you know, the, the number of people who can live at Akhet Aten, his new capital city, is reasonable, but it's certainly not a massive part of Egypt. And is it all of Egypt's elites? That's very arguable. Don't don't know about that. But like, you know, why he goes on this venture to begin with. And it, let me also point out that the chapter breaks breaks it out chronologically. Here's the beginning of it. Here's the middle of it. Here's the end of it. The answer to this question changes depending on who Akhenaten is at any given point in time. We're never the same person. Even if we start out on a venture with one particular idea, the motivations for that venture will change over time. And I think it would be the same for Akhenaten. You, you know, maybe, maybe there was a power struggle at Karnak. And if, it, if something's happening at Karnak, there would have been a similar power struggle, I would argue, at Memphis, at Heliopolis, at other temples where he's trying to impose a different Otanist cult. And we just don't have as much evidence for it because nothing is as well preserved as the Theban region. So if if that's the case, then, you know, he's going to take his toys and go to a new home and start this whole new Otan cult. But why he starts it at Thebes and Memphis and Heliopolis and then doesn't continue it there is a, is a different motivation there for what started it in the fir- first place. So it's it's a super complicated answer. And whether it's the Amun priesthood or the Patah priesthood or the Atum priesthood, we'll never know. He does go after the name of Amun Re, destroys that name later in his reign. He does go after the word gods later in his reign. Why those particular ones? Is it because Amun Re is king of the gods? Does he go after other gods' names? Not with such ferocity. Or is it that we don't have it as well preserved? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like We're, we're dealing right? with fragmentary evidence, a body of fragmentary evidence yeah. to begin with. And so the conclusions yeah. that we draw are always going to be disadvantaged by that. And a lot of destruction because he was so reviled after his reign. They're destroying all kinds of things that, that mm-hmm. he created. So it's, you know, you're, you're really yeah. putting together puzzle pieces, particularly of the statuary. But in short, if I'm going to transcend all of these realpolitik discussions, which I don't think you can answer. There's no evidence for a big fight with a high priest of Amun at Thebes, for instance. Well, and they wouldn't have reported something like that, right? If there's this internal power struggle, they're not Mm -hmm. going to, you know, record that and and detail that. Right. But they are recording power struggles of some kind, disagreements of some kind, 
um, weekly, right? Like yeah. not necessarily like straightforward, like, hey, we're we're having a conflict here. Right. So in short, we've got a king who's not able to manifest his vision for whatever reason with the powers that be, with the elite powers that be in particular, those high elites who run every system from Russia to the United States to ancient Egypt. That's who runs it. The king has to work with his elites and he's not able to get what he wants from his elites, whether they be a high priest or a general or whatever it is. And so he creates this new capital city and he names new elites. He creates an elite replacement, if you like, from the top down. And he gives favors to military men. It's an easy place to recruit quickly a bunch of yes men who are going to be like, yes, sir, I'll do what you want. He probably goes to some of the priests who are serving under the high elites at temples around the land, recruits them, and is like, I'm going to give you all this awesome shit if you come and do what I say. And they're like, yes, sir, this is, this is great social mobility that I would never see otherwise. And, and so he, he creates a new society that will work for him and everything that he wants in this place that he has moved to. So the, the short answer that transcends all of the details that we'll never know is that he wasn't able to manifest his vision in the way that he wanted in the traditional places. And he had to start anew. So re- read the chapter in The Good Kings. I go into all kinds of details and I talk about the Aten religion more particularly as a kind of litmus test of who's with you and who's against you. And I'm not doing that to say that Akhenaten was cynically using a religion to see who was on his side. I think he, he truly did believe in this religion, that this, was, this new religion of his was something that he, he was deeply connected to and, and, and wanted to promote. But it also worked at the same time to, to quickly determine who was, who was with him and who was against him. So yeah, so in short, we'll not know the details of it, but we will know that Akhenaten wasn't able to work with his elites the way that he wanted to, and he created a whole bunch of new words. That this religion served to, to know who was, so I, I'm saying this, who was with me, who was against me, right? Who's gonna get rid of the old ways and follow me? It's, it's arguably the first binary religion. And so when people say, oh, it's not really monotheism, well, most monotheisms aren't really monotheism when you, when you define it that particularly, certainly not Christianity with its trinity and its divine feminine and all that jazz and all its saints. Yes, in but it builds itself Christ- in a particular way. And yes. it's a question of whether or not you accept that narrative. Right. Because it's a choice. It's I either follow Akhenaten and the Aten. Or I follow the old ways and you cannot do both. This is not a polytheistic, oh, all the gods get to snuggle up and we get to hang out with each other kind of world. This is my way or the highway. And that kind of fanaticism or monotheism or whatever it is you want to call it was very effective for Akhenaten to impose his vision on people. It was a short-term solution and I would argue a violent short-term solution and it didn't work out in the long term because, I mean, but, but it's, it's a solution that we use to this day. You know, how many people use Judeo-Christian Islamic religion as a means of 
getting people to do what they what they want them to do. And you either accept it or you're not or you're an infidel. <laughs> so Akhenaten is creating that first system. It's rather frightening. It's scary. And it's scary how effective it was and continues to be. So again, look at look at my chapter. I, I break it down more there. It, it, uh, that chapter upsets a lot of people who want to see Akhenaten as having created this beautiful religious system of peace and love, but I, I'll stand by it. So, Okay. All right. Last question comes from Isabel again, and she says, I'm watching Out of Egypt, specifically the episode where the lords of Chimu were buried with stacks of women nearby as an offering. It made me think about Egyptian burials and Shoptis. Is there any evidence of female Shoptis being included in grave goods whose purpose would have been sexual? Or did sex not have a place in the Egyptian afterlife? Oh, contraire, dear. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. (laughs) Sex had a huge part in the Egyptian afterlife. You said Um, sex and afterlife. And now, now, now it's on. It's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. Okay, so... Remember when we were discussing the whole cutting off the hands and the penises thing earlier as a way of making it so the dead people lost their reproductive agency and their agency uh, whole cloth. You can also see that as a way of not allowing the dead to come back to life because the Egyptians understood the creation of the world as a masculine masturbatory event using the female element, the hand, and the phallus, the male element, together in conjunction to create a big bang, either of the first time, Atum, the first new life, the first creation of himself, or of Osiris, a recreation after death. And if you go to the rooftop crypt, I know that sounds weird, but it is what it is, in Dendera Temple, and you look at Osiris coming back to life, you see he's dead on the bier, and then his penis rises up erect, and then his hand reaches out to his penis, and then he rises up, and it's a whole it's a whole recreation from death. So sexuality, as far as we can it's see, and species interaction too, right? Because Isis yes, is a bird. The bird. Yes, thank you, Amber. The bird comes along. Sorry, you just skip that a part. little added kink for. Oh my god! Because what does the bird do, Amber? The bird is right on top of the penis, collecting the well, semen. Yes, this is, in this order is to Isis Horus, right? So she's because, you know, and it's a typical is this is also what we were talking about with sex, that the Egyptians did not show sex. They showed the moment of the hand and the phallus. Conception. Yes. But they don't put Isis as a woman climbing on top of Osiris Mm -hmm. on the funerary beer. Or as we see in Mesopotamia, like in those those beer jar scenes where it's like, you know. (laughs) Someone in front, someone behind. No, we don't get that in ancient Egypt. And it's not like the Egyptians couldn't show this. We do have ancient graffiti mm-hmm. that show that shows sexual position. Well, and the Tyrannerotic papyrus. And the Tyrannerotic papyrus, very carefully drawn sexual position. So they could have done it, but they didn't. They're like, oh no, let's let's make this more abstract and put the bird up on the top of the penis and she's collecting the semen, and then Horus will be will be conceived and born and all of that. So so that. For for more about sex and death, I would encourage you to look at the work of Gay Robbins. There are other people who work on this, but sex and death are closely intertwined. So closely, one could argue that the figurines that went into the tomb in the Old Kingdom that show like a well-endowed woman kneading dough to make bread is there to give you bread in the afterlife, but is also there to give you sex. 
that she is a servant who could to also give survive. sex or to just simply sexually arouse so that you could be reborn. I think both. I don't both. think that we need to draw a fine line here. I, I mean, there, there's the middle kingdom woman who's holding the beer jars on her head and she's bringing a duck in the other hand and she's she's gorgeous. She's got the boobs showing. She's She's got a beautiful body. There are better versions and there are uglier versions, but the point is the same. You've got a woman bringing beer, food, and her awesome body. And she's dressed in a very sexy way. There, There's other tomb figurines that are more sexually exciting, perhaps, that might show tattoos or the breasts. And she's fully oh, naked. What about the, 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 the nude adolescent girl motif and the Theban tombs and the tomb of Rechmeray? You've got that three-quarter butt view, basically, of the young, yeah, young yeah. girl. Like, actually, yeah. like, you know, taking a little bit of artistic license there to, to show more of her body. Yeah. And, and this is in a tombed chapel. And, and you get these kinds of dancing and musician scenes that show the scantily clad woman who, whose body parts are shown in a, as, yeah, exactly as you say, Amber, in a more tival way, right? To make sure it's, all the it's, body it's parts are shown. It's not so strictly adhering to Egyptian artistic canon in that three-quarter view, right? It's a because little she's there little as innovative. a body. She's mm-hmm. there as a body to be consumed. She's not there as a body to come to back arouse. to life magically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. got to show the butt. You got to. But for Shabtis, would Shabtis be? I mean, they're typically in the form of the deceased. Yes. Yes, and so Shabtis, no, Shabtis are the the deceased who's coming to work for himself. It's like a mini right. me times three hundred sixty five plus your overseers for the the months of the year. That, that are going to be working for you. And there aren't some that are feminized. Right. So not really but, a sexual aspect no, to that. No, but there's aspect. but there's all kinds of sexual elements that are put into the tomb at the same time that the Shopti is created to make sure that you get that well, sexual what about aspect as well. Pre-dynastic mm-hmm. um, royal burials with all of the the sacri- the human sacrifice that happens along yeah. with that. Would the some of those females perhaps been intended as, you know, I don't know, concubines, sexual companions, or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and now let's go back in time before the Shopti was developed, before these figurines were developed. Well, the origins of the Shopti, if you believe some Egyptologists, right? Yes. I think this idea is it went from a a literal human to a a figurine evolving over time. It's a substitution of the sacrifice. Yeah. Because it was Um, unpopular to kill people. It is just unpopular to kill people. And so let me let me front this by saying that in the first dynasty, most Egyptologists agree that there was human sacrifice to accompany the king's burial. There is disagreement about this. There are some who say that these burials were not all put into the ground at the same time, that these people were not sacrificed. I would encourage you to look at the dissertation of a former PhD student at UCLA, Rose Campbell, who looked at the skulls that were taken to Cambridge and the British, no, in the VNA in London for horrible eugenics reasons, but are there as our, as a remnant of potential sacrificial burials. And Rose Campbell has been able to note that many of them show trauma on the skulls, perimortem trauma, premortem trauma, not postmortem trauma. And yes, a good bioarchaeologist can tell the difference. I am not a good bioarchaeologist at all. So this is a debate. I fall on the side of the debate that this human sacrifice did actually occur. And I would look to 
an article probably from about 10 years ago by Ellen Morris about Macromala's rectangle. And maybe we can put that in the show notes because she talks about how the way the people are laid out in the burial space at Saqqara, ostensibly for a first dynasty ruler, there's an area where there's all of the young men, right? Which are maybe the the brothers of the new king, the sons of the old king. We don't really know. It's, it's not clear who these people are, but they're grouped together. And then there's another section where women are grouped together. And and you can see a social hierarchy in the way people are are laid out in this in this space of ritual enactment. And it's a, you know, it's a common thing for rulers to take living people with them into death. That that ritual sacrifice is something that doesn't just happen in Egypt. It happens in Europe. It happens in Africa. It happens in the New World. It happens in Asia. And it's something that often happens when rule, a kingly rule is new. It's a way of establishing a power over life and death in front of everyone and also establishing that the king gets certain servants in the next life. And those servants could be sex servants, sex workers. You call them concubines. I think it's an appropriate word. I mean, it's it's, it's the it's the a, archaeological term that we're still sort of stuck with, you know, in a it's in a horrible a word. It right? is. Yeah. But, it's a horrible word. And but to yet, call them sex workers, we don't know enough about their particular role to, and to, to assign them, that either. To call them concubines is pretty descriptive of what it is that we're talking about. We're talking about women whose bodies are being used for or sexualized sexual in some purpose. Way. Yeah, yeah. In life and death, potentially. So I, I don't shy away from these words just because we don't like them today if they suit the purpose of what it is we're talking about. Well, the problem so, is we don't really have a good terminology because in order to create one, we would need to know a lot more about, you know, the details or the the purpose. And as you say, we don't have the records. We don't have that information. Yeah. Yeah. But but killing your harem, so to speak, is something that happened in many parts of the world. And you're mentioning this site of Chimu in Peru, where you do see this this happening. So it also happened in the Americas. I, I was reading about the the mound of Cahokia, where you mm-hmm. also have women sacrificed in great numbers by the dozen to accompany a king's burial. So we can, you know, we can discuss till the cows come home whether or not they were sacrificed in one moment, whether they were buried together, whether they were sacrificed in public. It doesn't matter to me. These women are still being objectified and commodified and used as tokens of sex to be placed into a king's burial to serve him. And so the the other details can be debated. But I think that if we transcend those details, we can see the larger whole. And it's pretty clearly a typical patriarchal story. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Those were some awesome questions, as usual. You guys have yes, our patrons have the, good the patrons who who sent in yeah. their questions, and those of you who are patrons who maybe missed this month sending in a question or haven't done it yet, please feel free to to do so. Just throw out your random thoughts and see what happens. Yeah, because we can come up with some some interesting answers if we if we just ponder them a little bit. I mean, that's what's fun about this medium. It, mm-hmm. You can't do this at an academic conference. No, you be. You can't. You can't roasted. even. You no, know, and you can kind of do it at the 
bar of the academic conference, but not really, not really. So it's uh, the musing that this allows is, is really fun. And I, I think my favorite part of, of doing podcasts it makes me come up with ideas. I'll, I'll be like, oh my God, that's cool. And I scribble it down and, and save it for another time. So well, to have an audience of people who aren't scholars, who aren't Egyptologists, who have these very, you know, very practical questions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you don't always take the time to think about when you're maybe, you know, lost in the weeds a little bit. So never discount beginner's mind. It is something oh, that every yeah. academic should try to find. Every good teacher is always mm-hmm. trying to resource beginner's mind. The best Part of the reason I love those... working in the museum galleries, you know, yeah, the public, yeah. they have some very thoughtful questions. And when yeah. they look, they see things that specialists miss or or they lose track of in looking at other things. So, yeah. But so we'll be back in mid-August mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a with another episode. And in the meantime, if if you like this episode or others, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment, rate us, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps. We're on it Spotify really does as help. well. We're also it on really many other help. podcast feeding apps. So pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us. And this then of is course, our plea the to, so this is our plea to star us and rate us and comment and subscribe and all of those things. You know, check out ancientnow.substack.com. And if you like it, subscribe to it. You can do it for free. Our paid subscribers help to keep the content open. If you'd like to donate and support our work, you can become a paid subscriber. Patrons get a paid subscription to our Substack as part of their benefits. So they get a, a comp subscription to Ancient Now. And our Substack is really fun. And both are growing and it's it's really wonderful to it's see. It's true. In the last six to 12 months, you know, the audience has really grown. And, and that's completely organic. People who like it, they forward it. They yeah. tell other people who come and check it out and subscribe. And so because we're, we're not have a huge advertising budget. So the the advertisement is the people who read it and enjoy it or listen to this podcast and enjoy it and share it. So yeah, this is all homegrown. It's just what we do. And it's it's really fun. It's really good. So it was fun, Amber, doing a podcast with you. Um, I survived. You survived. <laughs> you only had how many break-ins into the into your bedroom studio? Oh, geez, yes. You know, well, <laughs> you know, having two kids, as you know, it, it's you know. It's it's always a, a gamble trying to do anything that requires quiet and no interruption. It's it just so doesn't. True. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, everyone. Okay. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms. So subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. 
And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.